Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up piece, Another Week Ends. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to talk about Another Week Ends. But first, I had the privilege this week of sitting down and talking with Fleming Rutledge, who is an Episcopal priest, a celebrated preacher, and the author of several books, including her newest, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. It's a great book, and it was a great conversation, which I present to you now with no further ado. Mockingcast for the first time, Reverend Fleming Rutledge, who has been an Episcopal priest and preacher for years and a celebrated author of books of sermons, as well as a great book on Middle Earth. And her most recent book is The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. I don't judge a book by this cover. I do judge them, though, by first sentences. I think that the first sentence of a book is people that are good at that. It's a real accomplishment. And yours is great. Your first sentence is a a three-word sentence. Christianity is unique. And then you follow it up with a paragraph talking about how no, until the gospel hit the scene in the ancient Mediterranean world, no one ever thought to take a crucified, shamed figure and make his death, the central proclamation of a religious <laughs> movement and how it's almost a counter-religious religion. It sure is. You got it. I did intend for that sentence to be, to have an impact because I think first sentences are important and most of my sentences are very long and complicated. So I wanted the first sentence to be simple. It's, it's a good one. It's, it made me think of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer said something in letters and papers from prison about maybe we need a religionless Christianity. And there's a lot of speculation about what he meant, but you spend a lot of time in the book talking about how the cross actually is a real critique to the religious impulse, which usually is about the human desire to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps and transcend reality. Yeah, well, this is certainly not something that's unique to me, to use that word. Uh, There are a number of very important thinkers, as I'm sure you're aware, um, Karl Barth being the leading one, I suppose, um, who have constantly hammered away at the message that Christianity is essentially the overturning of all religion, because Christianity is based upon irresistible divine intervention and not on our religious striving or our spiritual striving for improvement or for contact with the divine or whatever. All the emphasis in the gospel, as I understand it, and as I read the Bible, is on the agency of God. Whereas religion, whenever it's defined, is directed from or by or for the individual's religious effort. To repeat that in another way, if you look up the word religion in the dictionary, if anyone uses dictionaries anymore, (laughs) the verbs all have the human being as the subject. Religion has to do with faith, belief, ritual, 
things that human beings do. Christianity is only secondarily about what human beings do in response to the prior action of God, our Creator. That's an important distinction, I think. In fact, why, it's a crucial distinction. Why? Why do you think do you think it is that where people always seem to be turning Christianity and the gospel back into religion? <laughs> in the sense, in the negative sense that you're talking about, what it seems like there's a perennial addiction among uh, religious people in churches to reject uh, the rejection of religion and try to prop it back up. Well, it's human nature to do that. We always want to believe that we have the power, that we make the decisions that we are in charge of our own lives, and we don't seem to learn that when we are in charge of our lives, or think we are, we are actually making supposed decisions based on forces that are at work upon us from outside, over which we have very little control. So the position that I take, which is an honorable one going all the way back to Paul, and particularly associated with Augustine, we take a rather dim view of human possibility. Now, human possibility <laughs> and human potential are beloved concepts by people, and it is a 24-hour-a-day task on the part of the preacher and the teacher of the faith to point out that human potential and human possibility those ideas deceive us into thinking that we do not have any external forces to contend with. It's all up to us to work out our own salvation. I'm always amused by the way people want to quote the first part of that famous verse in Philippians where Paul says, "'Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling.'" Some people are terrified by that because they don't want to have to do it in fear and trembling. But the idea of working out your own salvation is basically a human idea and one that's very important to us because we really believe in our heart of hearts that we can or that the human race can work out its own salvation. But Paul goes on to say in the second half of that verse, for God is at work in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. But that second half of the verse is ignored, mostly, and it's the working out of your own salvation that is emphasized. It's the Pelagian default. And now, you've, you've, written, you've written a book here not just about the cross, but you really emphasize substitutionary atonement, which is, I mean— a doctrine that's fallen on hard times. I mean, even in the so-called evangelical uh, wing of the American church, that is often uh, criticized and rejected. But you come at, at, at this as someone who spent their life working, uh, it, it, you know, in support of things like the social gospel and social justice. And, and, and you said, you know, some of your, your, your struggle in this world to, 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 be, to bear witness to making it right has, has taught you just how— how wrong the world is. <laughs> and, 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 I mean, is there something about uh, a, a rejection of guilt and permissiveness that, that 
has made substitution fall on hard times. Well, I think that's a very perceptive comment about the problem that substitution, that theme, has um, has had. I, I, in fact, that's one of the better definitions of the problem that, that I've heard. I do want to interject, though, that I am at great pains in my book not to overemphasize substitution. I give one very substantive chapter to the theme of substitution, and I argue very strongly in favor of it. But it is one of only it is only one of eight chapters, and I insist in my book that the the Christus Victor theme and all that goes along with it is just as important as the substitutionary theme. And if one takes precedence over the other in a way that does not comport with the New Testament's presentation, then we have a problem. Yeah, you're critical of some of the more uh, conservative uh, articulations of substitutionary, penal substitution. And is it because, is it something like this, that, that what I think you're arguing is that when you really understand the cross, you can say, because God loves us and wants to put us to right, uh, Christ died. Whereas sometimes I think what people hear in certain wings of the church is something like, Jesus had to die so that God could love us. Like, is that the crux of the problem? Well, I think that's pretty much the crux of the problem, yes. It's not the only problem, but it's this most serious problem that it splits the Father from the Son, and it suggests that there was a time when God did not love us. Now, Augustine, again, dear, blessed Augustine, has a sensationally powerful passage about that, that there was never a time when God did not love us. There was never a time at any point along the way when God's wrath was um, predominant over his love. I quote this passage in the book, my book. Um, this is one of the things that we got wrong when the substitution theme became so dominant in the 19th and early 20th centuries. There was this idea that God is enraged with us, and something had to be done about that. And so the son stepped in and said, I'll do it. I'll take the rage. And um, this was this was uh, expounded upon and stretched and rationalized and hammered at in a way that was very unattractive, really, and very unappealing for modern, for contemporary people. And I'm trying to get away from that. I'm trying to present the theme of substitution in the way that the Scripture presents it. Now, there's still argument about that. I used to, the only really serious argument I ever had with my beloved mentor and professor J. Lewis Martin was about the theme of substitution because he didn't think that that it appeared in Paul's letters. And I think that it does. And Simon Gathercole thinks that it does. And I uh, wrote a brief review of his recent book in defense of substitution uh, in which I made common cause with him, believing that the theme is very present in the New Testament, but it's not the only theme, and it's not, it's not to be interpreted as though it were the only theme. And it shouldn't be interpreted in the, in the way that it used to be as having exclusively to do with the, um, what is the word, 
the propitiation of God's wrath. If you, if you take that as the central message at the heart of the theme of substitution, it really is impossible to defend it Christologically and in a Trinitarian sense, and it's also very unappealing for people to listen to. But is the wrath of God something like, I mean, Dorothy Sayers says, I think in her commentary on Dante, that the fire in heaven is the same as that in purgatory and hell. In, in heaven, it's the fire of God's love that, that radiates and enlightens. In purgatory, it's the cleansing fire. And then in hell, it's, it's the fire that comes, that feels uh, like, like burning because the sinner spurns the love. Well, I'm a big fan of Dorothy Sayers, and I think that I would go a long way with that. I think that it's very difficult to figure out exactly what hell is. It's very difficult to figure out exactly what the flames of hell. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have a whole chapter in my book on the descent into hell, which is a very minor theme in the New Testament, but I think it's an extremely important one. Um, and it is in the creed, the descent uh, into hell, although a great many churches have rejected that phraseology in the Nicene, in the Apostles' Creed. But I, it's so, it, I think it's so important that I uh, really consider that chapter the most important chapter in my book, the one called The Descent into Hell. Because I think we have to take seriously the promise of God that all evil will be done away, will be conquered, will be overcome, will be destroyed. This is the whole idea in the book of Revelation. And I believe that our contemporary world needs to hear that in its unvarnished form. And I think to change the phrase in the Nicene Creed, as many churches do, into he descended to the dead is uh, most unfortunate. If von Balthasar is right, right, he, uh, the great Catholic theologian and friend of Karl Barth, he said, really, there's only one person we know that's really been to hell, and that's Jesus. It's a Christological concept. Important insight. Thank you. I mentioned, uh, refer to Balthasar in my chapter, but uh, it probably ought to have been more. Yeah, that's a very important, crucial insight. Why do you think preachers today, in many circles of the church, are afraid to proclaim uh, with boldness the, the message of the cross? You, 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 uh, I read in an interview you gave, I think, to Christianity Today, you said someone told you that um, they, they don't preach the cross because uh, it doesn't help grow churches. <laughs> well, we laugh at that, and people do laugh at it, but I think that it's, I think people believe it somewhere deep down. People are sheepish about it, even. We're so timid today. Maybe not, there's some Christian circles where bold and fearless preaching goes on, but I don't hear much of that. I mostly hear preachers who seem to be a little bit afraid of what their congregation might think, and they don't want to offend anyone. So they say, well, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. And <sighs> Preaching, I, this is not my own idea. I think this is from Wesley, but it, it comes from a number of different sources. 
in the sermon, the preacher should be risking her life. The sermon should be, the, the, sermon, the message in the sermon is, this is so important to me, the preacher, and to you, the hearers, that your life may depend on it. There is great risk involved in preaching the gospel, which is one reason we just hardly ever hear it in the main lines anyway. I just almost never hear preachers who are really taking a risk. It is not a risk today to stand up in the pulpit and say that we have to be more inclusive. <laughs> It's funny. I read an article recently. I think we mentioned it at Mockingbird. Uh, it, it was in the Atlantic, and it was talking about how the the moral relativism that seemed to develop in the late '80s and '90s was eroding, and now there's a new moral absolutism, but based on shame and exclusion. <laughs> so it's interesting. We've gotten rid of guilt, maybe, but replaced it with shame and inclu- a shame and inclusion, which is much less forgiving. Like as we become more permissive, we've become a much less gracious and forgiving society. Andy Croach did a wonderful piece on that in Christianity Today. I think it was the uh, cover article. Oh, I agree with that. But we have a feel-good church now, and everyone is supposed to feel good about being themselves and about who they are, and the fact that down deep, none of us feels good about ourselves or shouldn't feel good about ourselves in a very profound sense. I can't help thinking about how Donald Trump said he didn't really need to be forgiven for anything. Well, a lot of, a lot of um, self-identified evangelical pastors, and I suppose the most interesting one to me is Russell Moore, has just come right out and said, this is not acceptable. We cannot accept someone identifying as a Christian who says he doesn't need to be forgiven for anything. I recently did a presentation which is based on my chapter on sin in the book, which essentially tries to show how we can't understand sin or the depth of our own bondage to sin until we know the grace of God. In other words, until we are safe in God's presence and in God's promise we can't really understand that we need to be forgiven. Yeah, this is where like Calvin says, right? Knowledge of God and knowledge of self are so bound up. But the problem is, unless you know that God is gracious to you, you can't really stand the light of his love. So you kind of run away. It's catch-22 kind of dynamic. Yes, because God's love is not just all forgiving. God's love is not just accepting me the way I am, God forbid. I look forward to the refiner's fire. I can honestly say that. After eight years of psychoanalysis and struggling through my relationship to my grown children and now to my grown grandchildren, I know that I'm not all right just as I am. I look forward to the refiner's fire. And that, I know, is the way that God loves me and will make me against my own will, will make me into the person I really want to be but don't have the power to create in myself. When I speak like that, I think a lot about the preaching of Paul Zoll. When I was at Grace Church in the, in the year 1981, we only worked together for one year. But I, whenever I talk like that, I hear Paul Zoll's voice saying similar things about 
the imprisoned self. Yeah, I, he and he's, as you know, his son started Mockingbird, and he's a dear friend to many of us. This is a great book, and I want to just tell our listeners that I, I would not be intimidated by its size. It's not a small book, but it's incredibly readable. Uh, and I found a lot of uh, your anecdotal kind of uh, observations, as well as your analysis of culture. Uh, it's not just a, a astute theological volume, but your analysis of culture is really great. And your uh, the one story you have, I love where you, you, you say, look, I think it's pretty demonstrable that people are fearing judgment and, and exclusion. And they, but, you know, at least grant me that we're all judges and excluders. And you tell this story about this article you read about this girl in like a school in New York or something that was able to sort of, <laughs> this was an obvious truth to her about, you know, the whole exclusion and shaming. But you're also a preacher. Let me ask, what advice do you have for preachers? Preachers who are, uh, especially a lot of our listeners are younger preachers. You know, they're in their first leg of parish work. Uh, what would you say as someone has not, who has not just done a lot of writing, but has labored in the gospel you know, fields for decades? Uh, what, what, what wisdom do you have out there for preachers? Well, I have a great many thoughts for preachers because I've done a whole lot of teaching, preaching. Not officially, really, but I have many, many, many times I have worked with preachers to help them. And I have some basic things that I try to put across. And number one is, it's about God, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) It's not about you. It's not about you and your family, you and your children, you and at least not primarily. And and I'm I'm trying to be polemical here um, in order to make the point. The gospel is about God. It's not about our feelings about God or our experiences of God, not primarily. It's about God first. It it includes us, but it's not about us. It gathers us in, but it's God who does the work. In other words, the the question of agency is at stake. Who is the active agency in the gospel? Is it us or is it God? Well, most people would say, of course, it's God. But the fact is that in most sermons— God is not the subject of the sentences. And so I ask young preachers to watch their sentences. What's the subject of the verb? It's just amazing to me how often I hear sermons that purport to be about God and about Jesus our Lord, but they drift off into stories about our own religious feelings or our religious duties or our religious um, observances, our spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are fine, but they are not the center of the human life, of the Christian life. The center of the Christian life is God's actions, God's prior activity, and pointing out in the sermon, the way that God is acting is more important than talking about how we respond. There are too many shoulds and oughts in sermons. There's too much exhortation. There's too much we are called to. That doesn't motivate people. What motivates people is being caught up in the story to which they belong. You think that there's not enough of this because... 
not enough preachers are really caught up in it themselves. Well, I, I'm, for I guess my, the short answer would be yes. Uh, certainly, in a, lot of, <laughs> in a lot of the main lines, you can tell that the preachers don't believe a lot of what is classically taught in Christian doctrine. You can tell they don't believe it. They even will say, well, we don't necessarily have to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Now, I've heard that this year. Um, they'll say something like, well, the disciples came to realize that love, the love of Jesus was stronger than death, something like that. Or they'll talk about Jesus the way Marcus Borg talks about Jesus, that Jesus is a very... Uh, a charismatic, gifted person who taught things that all of us are drawn to and want to assimilate to. But the but classical Christology is not at the heart of any of this. And when we drift away from classical Christology, we start making it up a la Bart Ehrman, or God did something. Well, if anybody wants a great uh, introduction, uh, more than an introduction, but a great understanding of classical Christology, I'd have them read your book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. Fleming, thank you so much for making some time uh, to talk with me. Well, I enjoyed it. It's too bad I can't go on and on. I was just getting ready to say, a lot of people just say, read the footnotes. Uh, I, they, yeah, you know what? There's, there, I didn't see a bad footnote in this book. They're great. I appreciate your affirmation very much. Uh, have a great evening. Welcome back to the Mockingcast, the usual suspects. David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist of this whole organization coming to us from lovely Charlottesville, Virginia. Scott, I'm looking into a tattoo. I'm looking into a tattoo of that. Oh, I like that. You, well, across what, you have, my forehead, I hope that's not going to be too bold for people. What would be great <laughs> is if it was a Chinese character tattoo. And then you could explain, what does that mean? Like peace or, no, it means animating force. Yeah, that's, it's probably more than one character though, but. And Sarah Condon coming to us from lovely Texas, the Houston, Texas. greater Houston area. Yeah. It's, and you're coming to us from, a, I've been to your house. It's a lovely location with a lovely yard, a lovely garden. Thank you. It is a beautiful rectory. Thank you. yippee Kaye. Well, this week we have yet another rundown of another weekend's chock full as usual of lots of great articles, uh, observations. David, start us off, please, with what everybody should probably already know, but we'll tell them anyway. Well, uh, this just came across our, our desk uh, via social media, actually, uh, ironically enough. A uh, big study that was released, I think, in March or January, but it's just now coming to us, uh, linking, formally linking 
uh, social media use to likelihood of suffering from depression. And um, it's not a 100% uh, you know, closed case, but it is something that we all suspect. I guess there have been lots of studies that kind of evaluate just one group or just one social media platform, but this was a first large-scale large-scale study that found that, you know, what we all know to be true, the more time you spend on social media, the uh, happier you perceive your friends to be and the worse you feel as a result. Well, there you go. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. I was checking my Shared Facebook when you were saying media. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny, Invisibilia, which is one of the best podcasts out there, I think, um, looking at the invisible forces that shape our lives, did a thing on computers and technology, and they did a store, a part of the thing was about the guy who was like taking photos of rude subway behavior. Uh, and then he was getting all these hits, but then he stopped getting a lot of hits and was addicted to the hits. And so he started uh, taking pictures, being rude to people like, oh my gosh, this person looks so stupid or that. And then finally wow. Gotham Magazine outed his identity <laughs> and then people started harassing him. Uh, but they basically... And now his life has changed. He stopped doing that. And now his Instagram is all just nature pictures, basically. But, and his, you know, he's married now. And, uh, but the interesting thing was they, they had a psychologist say that basically you do feel, when you're angry and you vent and somebody validates you, it does short-term make you feel better. And the internet is a great, social media is a great echo chamber. But long-term, he said the same thing, that basically it makes you feel good in the short run. Long-term, uh, it seems to actually make your mood depressive and it doesn't help you at all. So there you go. Yeah. What, what I thought was interesting about this though, is that it's the study is among us. Young, it's young adults, mm. which makes me wonder about how, like how um, Facebook is generally like an older population and how I think of Facebook in many ways as a way to connect myself professionally. But for people who are 10 years younger than we are, or even younger than that, everything happens online. So it's not just like their professional life. It's also like their dating life and maybe even their sex life. And for kids who are in high school, bullying, like all of that is happening in this incredible isolation on social media. And um, I mean, to me, that would, that might point to depression more clearly than anything else. Cause mm. you know, when you're being bullied in person, you have your group of friends there and there's some back and forth happening, hopefully. Right. But when you're being bullied, you know, on your Instagram photo that you've uploaded and you're a 15-year-old girl, like, it's just you staring at your phone. And, I, I mean, that must be just a, a uniquely sad experience compared mm. to the way that that would happen in person, right? So. Yeah, that's that's really uh, – gosh, I hadn't thought about that. That's They also um, – wonder you know how the causality works is is it perhaps that people are who are already depressed then look to social media to fill that void so is there some self-selection going on but i think the isolating aspect is is uh is enormous gosh anyway what do you think scott uh yeah i i think it's probably both and i'll take the hegelian synthetic uh <laughs> escape route, even though that's an oversimplification of Hegel. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, you know, I think technology does not have to make us uh, more terrible, horrible people. Our nature will do that just well, fine on its own. But it can very, it can very readily contribute as often it does. Uh, and also we have a related, I thought in my head, however my head associates, 
we have a story about really particular special drink orders. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up for people, but it is a, uh, uh, there's a new book out called Devoured by Sophie Egan, who writes about food for the New York Times. And she was just talking about the phenomenon of uh, fast food in America and how this sort of hyper-industrialized uh, form of, uh, you know, producing food has made perhaps it's making people feel anonymous and so we overcompensate for uh, our identity uh, formation purposes by creating really super specialized orders and you know you, you now have menus that are shrinking like at chipotle you know there's like less and less things you can get but then there's also all these secret menus i just had my first secret menu item the other day this shows how uh, you know uncool i am i guess but i was at john juice and I was with a college student and he said, order, order the pink starburst, order the pink starburst. I said, I don't see a pink starburst on the you know menu. He's like, I know it's on the secret menu. It's, it's a smoothie that tastes just like a pink starburst. And I ordered it and it, lo and behold, if you want the liquid form of a pink starburst, people, you have now. I've, that's my gift to you this week. Go to John. Sure, surely has no carcinogenic <laughs> contents like, in it. No, not at all. It tastes toxic, but um, she was. She's mentioning how she's very soft. She soft pedals it, but says this might have to do with the fact that everyone in line at Starbucks has an incredibly specific, you know, order. Um, might have to do with our insecurity about uh, feeling like an individual uh, in a mass consumer society, and that the, the but actually the thing that makes us less individual, ironically, is our uh, need to assert our individuality, and that's sort of very, you know, universal. Wow! So I used to be a barista, and um, <laughs> I, I bet you were people's favorite barista in college. Well, yeah, probably. Um, and I smiled a lot. Um, yeah. And I just, so I did it. It was at Ole Miss when I was in college. And, um, I just remember like, as like the, from the other side of the counter, how you come to identify each of your, um, your customers by their orders. Right. Like, and you try to guess by looking at them like, Oh, well, I mean, because most of Oxford is going to order like a non-fat vanilla latte, but then there's like those couple of people that come in and they order, you know, uh, they order something and they only want you use heavy cream as the milk. Like there's just, it, it's fascinating to me. And I love the title, Fancy Starbucks Drinks and the special snowflakes who order them. Like all of the particularities that people kind of carry around. And then the judgment that comes from the people who make them. So, uh, what, yeah. what do you guys order when you go get coffee? Non-fat vanilla latte, man. David, I, I order sh- straight coffee. Yeah, what? that's what I do. I, and I don't even say like I don't even say vent. I'm like, can I get a medium like something like with a darker flavor? I mean, Sarah, this is actually one place, and I mean, I'll, maybe I'll get uh, crucified for this, but uh, where I I see some sort of gender differences playing out. I don't oh, know if yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah. It's like the uh, I know if I'm behind like five young women that yeah. I'm, I'm screwed in terms yep. of like how long it's going to take. But if I'm, it's like at the checkout line, if you're behind like six dads who are just trying to get out of there as soon as possible, like that's the line to get in. And yeah. at Starbucks, you, is that, I mean, am I, am oh, I, I think that's a hundred solid ground. 
Yeah, yeah, it was like all, all the guys order coffee, all the girls, <laughs> girls order like complicated. And now they have these like Frappuccino minis. So it's like a way to like get two ounces of Frappuccino or something for $5. Like, I don't know. It's, yeah. I so you heard it here. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, Sarah Condon, speaking for all women, validated <laughs> David's generalization about all women. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions, so they've got to find those extra cups to fill. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. You can't get cherry soda, cause they've got to sell their quota. And the way things are, I guess they never will. They've got a zillion tons of coffee in Brazil. No tea. Well, moving on, let's talk about freedom. Free will. Is, does it exist, David? And should we, do we need it? Should we fake it? Should we pretend we have it? Well, I guess uh, how I answer that question depends on uh, how I answer that question. <laughs> oh, wow. Was, see? Wow. Meta. Meta. Meta um, humor. Let me I'll say, okay, so this is another big uh, piece in the Atlantic about – it's called The Free Will is an Illusion. And um, – you know, every time something like this comes out in the popular media, I have to say, like, I it's forwarded to me or the Mockingbird inbox, like, you know, 50 times. So clearly we've made our stance on free will known. But, um, uh, yeah, it, it's a sort of an overview of the neuroscience of free will and kind of trying to say it's widely accepted at this point in the scientific community that we do not have free will. That doesn't mean everything is fatalistic. It doesn't mean that uh, – but it does mean to some extent your you're, you know, actions are determined by not just uh, – by a combination of nature and nurture and um, – this is not what, what people want to hear. In fact, the article talks to these. Uh, I, gu I guess if you if you're a person that says you don't believe in free will, it's been shown through these studies that you work less hard and you act less morally. You're like more willing to like steal and cheat, and and it's a way of sort of getting out of any blame for what 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 uh, what happens or what you kind of do. And um, they quote Nietzsche and they quote – it's one of these things that kind of drives me crazy because they never quote uh, theologians. Right. And I get it. You know, it's – they don't want to go into the religious realm. But they act like this is some majorly new finding that no one's ever talked about this before. And you're like, well, you haven't – have you read Augustine? Like have you read St. Paul? Like this is – the Christian faith is actually – there's there's very limited human agency. As, as much as American religion has kind of – and American everything is premised on an optimistic view of ourselves and our ability to do what's right and to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The, the Christian witness has never, uh, ever really talked about, a, you know, majored on human agency. And it is a good article. I think people should read it. What's never even entertained is that you can both not be in control of something you do and still be uh, culpable for it. Like, um, you know, the, the idea that you would both be um, – you know, something would be out of your control and yet you, it's still you that does it. Uh, you know, I, I believe that I think what Christianity says is actually, you know, you're, you're a sinner. You didn't choose that, you know, just like you didn't choose your parents, but that doesn't mean, um, that it doesn't need to be forgiven. Um, it, you know, in, in fact, that's the beauty of this whole thing. Do Sorry. you choose to say something, Sarah? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I, I it's funny. This was always a big conversation in seminary, and um, most of the people I went to seminary with probably I, I could easily say believed in in the free will. And um, the more I'm in ordained ministry and interact with sinners as myself a sinner, the more I believe in the bound will, and that people are very, um, very much limited by themselves in ways that we can't even comprehend. And I, I, I often think even myself more than others is like a bowling ball just going down the alley. And like some, you know, in, in some ways I can like go to one side in some ways I can go to the other side, but like, I'm still going to end up like, you know, in the same, like at the end of the thing, like dropping off into the pins, you know what I mean? And whether I hit some pins or I don't, like, I'm not going to leave that lane. And so, um, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of how I think of the will, but this is a, this is like still a hotly debated thing amongst some of the people I went to seminary with. That's interesting. I, uh, it, well, I'm choosing whether or not I'm going to weigh in. I think I shall, uh. Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting on a couple fronts. Like, I think, A, how we think of freedom, like, as moderns is in a libertine way. If I'm free when I have options, and the more options I have, the more free I am. Whereas in a more classical sense, if you're thinking, like, as an Aristotelian or something, you're free, freedom is about being what you are, you know, what, you're, what your nature is. So, uh, yeah, I think you're right. The crack addict is, is freely devouring, you know, <laughs> uh, pounds of crack. But they, so, but that's... You know, the, for them to do something else, they have to want something else. So I think so, so often, this is why like an Augustinian like understanding of salvation, it's about healing of the will because they, like, it's, it's the prayer, God, command what you will and give me the grace to will what you command. The, 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 unless we're, we have spiritual surgery from the inside out and love redirects our concupiscence, one of my favorite theological words, right? Wrongly ordered desire. Unless our concupiscence is reordered, that we, we just... We freely choose the stuff that's awful for us. Yeah, and I, you know, I think addicts are a great example, a great way to talk about the will. But I also think like those moments when we say to ourselves, "I'm not," I'm like, "I'm not going to mention," you know, this like thing that my husband did that drives me nuts. Like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to get in a fight about it. And then you like sit down on the couch with him and you're like hey man why don't you just unload the dishwasher when i'm putting the kids to bed and then you're like why did i just say that like that is like i mean that's the will that's like bound will right like happening in our lives and it, it, you know i i don't know i just i think it's so obvious but whatever yeah the other thing that's interesting about it is like at the end of the article he talked about it's just the reductionistic nature as you were mentioning david of like well because neuroscience and other depth psychology says this and this like i think we do like our experience of freedom is like an emergent reality. It's something that it, it, it couldn't happen without your brain. It couldn't happen without your biochemistry and things, but can't be reduced to that. There's a great book that uh, came out a couple of years ago by Christian Smith called what is a person. And the theory of his book was, he's like, look, I'm a social scientist. My colleagues in social science have all of these political commitments, mostly progressive human rights. And they're against gentle mutilation and this kind of thing. But when I read their works, none of their views of a person could sustain their political commitments because they're so reductive. And so he's basically trying to come up with an emergent conception of personhood that would, um, that's informed by social science. That's what, that's, I think that like, it's the, the sort of skepticism about it strikes me as slightly reductive. The neuroscience stuff is, is by definition 
reductive. I think we talked about this before, but we used to run all these neuros. There used to, there was really about five years ago, such a, it was so in vogue to say, well, neuroscience tells us this and neuroscience tells us that. And, you know, you hear enough of those studies that say the exact, like that take a 180 to the study before it. You feel like, well, maybe, maybe neuroscience is not going to tell us everything that we need to know about ourselves and the world and, and especially, um, you know, our soul. I'm free, baby. Free, baby. Let me show you how I live and let you live, baby. Let's be free, baby. And cruise the world. Are you with it, girl? David, we have our last piece is something that I, is controversial. A documentary made about a town full of people that have been looking for love in all the wrong places, to put it charitably. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a town. Tell us about this documentary. Okay, so it's a documentary called Pervert Park, and it's exactly what you think it is. I guess there's a town near Tampa. Um, where that is sort of a um, haven almost for sex offenders and because uh, it's too far away from any schools uh, it's, it's far enough away from any schools and people have sort of gravitated there over the years and they took these two scandinavians americans sort of want to um you know avoid thinking about it at all at all costs but this took two scandinavians went in and did a documentary about it and you know the documentary is it, they interview all these people who sex offenders meaning they're not um they've been caught and they're out of jail, and they've done terrible things. I mean, the worst possible things. And as a parent, my stomach turns thinking about some of the stuff. And it's not just men, by the way, but it is mostly men. And um, it, you know, it says it's the the review that I read about it says that. And I'm not sure I actually want to watch it, but I, I probably should. Uh, the review talks about, you know, um, all these people are repentant and they see that their meaning of their life is sort of how do you go forward in um, once you've done something like this and what what uh, the, 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 the documentary doesn't actually answer these things, but how much compassion is too much compassion? What, um, you know, when you when you enough of these interviews with these serial uh, molesters and rapists um and I, I couldn't help but think this is, uh, you know, talk about outcast. Uh, you know, um, these is the, this is the, um, these are the true pariahs of our society. And where would, where would Christ be? I, I don't know. Um, but it is a challenge to even, uh, to even want to go there. And, you know, maybe it's not our question to answer ultimately, but it sounds like, a, uh, it's, it's like, uh, you know, sociopaths, how to, how to, how does God deal with them? Um, when you talk to these people that have done these horrific things, like, can God, you know, it, it completely is outside the bounds of what I can conceive of as uh, possi- possibly uh, possible love. Yeah, and you mentioned to me when you shot over the piece to me, like via email, that like this. Yeah, I think you said something like, "This is where Jesus might have hung out." Like, and I, I was thinking about it in light of something Lady Gaga said this week and stirred up a lot of controversy. CJ wrote a great piece about it. And Sarah, you and I had a conversation about some social media interaction you had around this Mary Magdalene uh, quotation and all this. Uh, so Sarah, share how social media contributed to your well-being this week. So I, so I love a good face. Right. That's a joke. I hate face. But, uh, but um, 
I put up this, uh, there was this great little thing, uh, Gaga uh, responds, link, Catholic link article on Instagram. So um, she, I, I guess, has gotten a pushback because she, she didn't talk, she, she talked about the Eucharist and um, just sort of sharing more about her faith. And um, it sounds like, you know, you know, said, accused her of only talking about it because this is sort of a trend that she's trying to become a part of. So. She wrote something where she talked about Mary Magdalene um, washing the feet of Christ, and she talked about her being a prostitute. And she just, um, she just goes on to say, um, we are not just celebrities, we are humans and sinners, children, and our lives are not void of values because we struggle. We are equally, we are as equally forgiven as a neighbor, which is interesting given the us we just talked about. God is never a trend, no matter who the... So anyway, so anyway, I put this up because I thought it was remarkable. I mean, I, any time that someone in this uh, level of celebrity talks about our need for Jesus and our being sinners, I think it's remarkable. And um, especially Lady Gaga, who when we talk about people who feel like the least and the last and the social outcast, I mean, and CJ talked about this in his piece, like she is... You know, what does she call her fans? Monsters, the little monsters or something like that. You know, that's her that's her crew. And um, so I posted it and someone immediately posted like a correction to it to say, like, well, that's not who Mary Magdalene was. And here's the Wikipedia link anyway. And it became this whole thing of like, let's tear down what she said, because, you know, we don't believe it's scripturally accurate. Um and because, and you know, the other argument was, and because, you know, just because a celebrity says it doesn't mean it's right. And uh, I was, yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. What? It was, oh. it, there was a whole, there was, there were layers <laughs> of this, like, sort of anger at her. And, um, yeah, just trying to kind of, you know, and I, I said I felt like he was maybe missing the um, forest for the trees, but. Because it's, it's for the modern biblical critical scholarship, or, you know. It's it's there's been a tendency to lump Mary Magdalene in with with the you know sc- scandalous woman that you mentioned, and a lot of biblical scholars would say actually they they, they seem like two different. They're two di- sure. in the text. They're two different characters. The tradition has fused them. Um, I was telling Sarah uh, yesterday, I think, because we were talking about this. That I heard a great sermon on this years ago by the Reverend Doctor John Galloway, uh, who is a Princeton board member, an all around great guy, but. He preached a sermon about this, about this, because some scholars were writing articles about at the time about how Mary Magdalene wasn't the prostitute and how, you know, she was this esteemed woman and we confused her being a prostitute. He said, you know, in heaven, I imagine when these two met in heaven, that Mary Magdalene went up to this, Mary went, who was a woman, Mary Magdalene was a woman who was afflicted and experienced deliverance in Jesus. So I imagine Mary Magdalene embracing this prostitute and saying, hugging her and saying, it's been my honor to have been associated with you and confused with you my whole life. And I've been dying to meet. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. Like, I don't know. I just, I, I, I get very confused by the things that, especially as clergy that we pick out to pull apart in culture. So. Yeah. And the way we, um, all of these stories, it seems we've talked about today. I didn't even realize this when 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 you'd sent out this rundown, Scott. But 
it challenges the way that we romanticize the outcasts. Like, what do you do when you're actually dealing not with a romanticized, you know, kid who's been bullied at school because they're different, but you deal with people who've been cast out because they should be cast out. Like people who have to live in a town in Tampa or, you know, in, in, I mean, that would, that would have been the equivalent of this prostitute then, you know, it would have in that situation. And does, can God's, does their victimhood absolve them or does Jesus absolve them? Um, you know, these are the thing questions you really have to ask. This is where the rubber hits the road of forgiveness and it's extremely uncomfortable and you can see why it's so offensive. Um, but I, I, I was, you know, I'm not the biggest Lady Gaga fan in the world, but I, I loved what she Guys, wrote. I got, I, I got to go rogue here. I got to go rogue. It wasn't in the plan. Okay. But I, I, I like going rogue. I sent you guys rogue this clip. I got to talk about this Gregory Porter jazz guy right now because he's like super accomplished. And his latest album is called Take Me to the Alley. His mom was a storefront preacher. So take heart, all you preachers out there. Your kids might be jazz musicians someday. But he has this song that he's, it's on, it's on his latest album called Take Me to the Alley, and it's about when the Pope visits. And you guys, the lyrics, I mean, they're totally what we're talking about. Like, he, he says, like, everyone, you know, everyone prepares for the king. They gild their houses, right? They get all ready. And then he shows up and he says, take me to the alley. Take me to the lost and the least and the hungry ones. And it's like, you know, I don't know. I feel like that's what we're talking about. It's such a beautiful song. We should totally post a link to it. I'll put it. Uh, I'll put it in the weekender. I promise, David. You've said it once, uh, and I'll repeat and quote you that uh, most of us are a couple bad decisions and three days away from being a tabloid headline, and a lot of us are on day two. So uh, just we should be mindful of that. I think that's. I don't. I don't think that's. I think that's Jacob Smith. That's actually, but I'll, uh, I'll take credit. Sure. Well, the gospel is for sinners, and both of you have a great weekend. Bye. Thanks, Scott. And I'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Once again, thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. And as always, any of the content you've heard referred to can be found on our website, mbird.com. And if you like what you heard, stop by iTunes, please, and write a review or give us a rating. And also, like, maybe share it with a friend and tell them why you like it. We love mail, so if you want to share some thoughts uh, about what you heard or some of the pieces we referred to, please go to our website or email us at info at Have a great weekend.